Glad you're here. My name's Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Um, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew 27, I believe. Um, happy Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Well, guys, I love all the pastels, man. It's great. Um, there's a lot that we could point to today as to why we have to be thankful. Um, we actually got to have church on Easter. I was pretty excited about that, as simple as that is. Uh, this year is off to a way better start than last for most of us. There's all sorts of things we have to be thankful for. But today, uh, I want to narrow your attention in on one historical claim, uh, one historical occurrence. As some people claimed it happened. Um, and it's a fact that is a far superior, far more lasting, far larger reason that we all have to be thankful today. It's a reason that is not threatened by a pandemic or sickness or lockdown. It does not rest nor find its strength in presidents, politics, or prosperity. The rising and falling of nations no more diminish this fact than the shade of a tree diminish the shining of the sun. The whole of Christianity rides on this one claim. If it did happen, then you must deal with the claims of Jesus in the New Testament with a new rigor and seriousness. If it didn't happen, then the whole thing implodes on itself. It's not worth your attention at all, and we are wasting our time being here. Today, I want to talk to you about the claims that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you grew up in church and have never asked the kind of questions I'm about to ask, you may find this a bit boring. However, <laughs> if you are on the outskirts of Christianity, if you've had questions about this whole thing and are unsure of the plausibility of something like this happening, then my hopes are that you will sense that I am talking to you exactly where you're at. So let me pray. We'll set the stage. We'll read the account. Then we'll chat. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of things um, that tempt to distract us in moments like this. There's to-do lists, <laughs> Easter egg hunts, meals to cook, work to be done, people to talk to, songs to sing, sermons to listen to. And in all the distractions that we sit amongst right now, would you grace us, Holy Spirit, to engage with you in a way that impacts and transforms us to become people of different sort, people of a different kind, quality, power, and strength that we have not in and of ourselves. God, speak peace to our hearts right now that we could sit with the claims of history, the claims of the New Testament. Would you meet us in our doubt and in our skepticism, Jesus? We love you. In name we pray these things, amen. As the story goes, God created and gave order to all things, earth, sun, stars, animals, and finally breathed life into man himself, created him from the dust of the ground. As the story goes, the sun was still, hasn't set yet on creation, still rising, I suppose you could say, 
And man decided he knew better than creator. He took matters into his own hand, decided what was right for him and wrong for him. And this was called sin. And what the Bible says is this thing cursed all creation, including man and woman. No more would man live forever in the garden as he was intended to. But now he would die. When sin entered, mortality, death entered as well. Created for eternity, and therefore with dreams of eternity in his heart, man would now die. Death would become the ultimate and inescapable foe for all humanity. In fact, just reading the other day on Popular Mechanic. Anyone want to read that one? It's on Apple News. And the claim was, on this article headline... A Dyson, I'm reading to you, a Dyson sphere could bring humans back from the dead, researchers say. You read it? This cosmic megastructure may be the key to resurrection and immortality today. Okay. However implausible you think resurrection is, scientists are trying to figure it out and claiming they may have found the secret. Right? Anyway. There arise on the stage of humanity, a people. On the history of the human race, this people group arises who claim a sort of exclusive relationship with a deity that they claim created everything. They were the Jews, the Hebrews. They said he is not an impersonable force, but rather a person, a being that we can relate to. And nor is he a God among many gods. He is the chief creator God, the one God, the one true God who created everything. That's what they claimed. The Hebrew people claimed that this God, this ultimate creator, God above all other gods, engaged with him, not engaged with them, not like other deities, but personally, right? In fact, like a friend, the fathers of the whole worldview, Moses and Abraham, are both called friends of God in different places. And this people have a long and complicated relationship with this God that they claim created the universe. And today, riddle me this, thy skeptic. Today, the three main world religions all find their roots in Abraham and, Abraham and Moses. Riddle me that. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all from this story. And so it's interesting that the authoritative text as it develops what we call the Old Testament, most of it was not written by those in power trying to maintain some sort of religious control. It's not how the Old Testament came to be. Rather, it was written as an indictment against the people of God for betraying the God they claim to worship. The Old Testament, in large part, is a minority report, saying that you have missed the God that you claim all these structures worship. The Bible is a fascinating book, if you've never read it. Pick it up, man, especially the prophets. The prophets are pointing to how the systems they built around this God had failed them, had missed the point, right? The New Testament does the same thing to us today. Points out to us how the edifices we build around relationships with God have failed us to accomplish what God alone can accomplish. Well, I don't care how much you go to church, man. It's not going to accomplish what God alone can accomplish, all right? There are things that he himself has the power to do. I can't bring you back from, from the dead, That's Jesus' business. All right, so every once in a while, this people group would get a glimpse of how this God truly 
really longed to relate to them despite the brokenness that they found themselves in. So guy comes along, Moses. You heard old Moses, old Mo? Leads them out of slavery from the Egyptians into the land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds sticky, right? (laughs) Through David, they get a glimpse at how this God longs to relate to them through David, who unites the kingdoms and ushers in the golden age through the priests. They get a glimpse at how this God longs to relate to them through the priests who make sacrifice for them. But the only problem with all these glimpses of who this God is supposed to be is all these figures, priests, prophets, kings, all of them fail. The Bible is not about good men. All of them failed. They lied, they cheated, they committed adultery, they murdered. All of them failed. One after the other, reveal their brokenness in one way or another. But through the whole story, ever since the beginning, God gave them hopes of another figure, a figure they called the Messiah, right? One who would be both prophet, priest, and king, another Moses, another David, another priest who would not fail. This figure that you get these cryptic glimpses of through the Old Testament would be Messiah, Savior. He would establish justice. He would mediate for the people, and he would rule in righteousness. He would redeem and save. And this sets the stage for Jesus. This is what he walks into. And at every turn in Jesus' ministry, especially towards the end if you were with us last week, Jesus and his disciples after him would be claiming that he is the one Scripture talked about. He is the one all Scripture pointed to. He does things, says things, quote things to point to the Old Testament prophecies affirming, I am he, right? Answering the question that was on everyone's mind, could this be the Messiah, right? And if you were with us last week, you know that Jesus' answer is a confrontational and resounding, I am the one, right? So we pick it up in Scripture. If you have your Bible open, it's going to be on the screen. We pick it up in Scripture after the mock midnight trial of Jesus, okay? After the attempt of Pilate to release Jesus, after the crowd cries out, crucify him, after Jesus is beaten within an inch of death, forced to carry the timber beam, which he would then be nailed to and posted upright for all to see. See, the Romans had perfected the art of social control through public execution. They wanted, the Romans wanted everyone to know this is what happens to you when you mess with Pax Romana, Roman justice, right? Roman peace. See, the problem with beating a man to death is it was too quick. Maybe a couple hundred might see it. Maybe. You got a big crowd, right? Crucifixion would last not hours but days. And if grieving friends in a kind of frantic desperation brought them food and water, maybe a week. So they would do this off of the main road that entered into the city, right? Most medical doctors believe the victims would have died from suffocation, actually, from the pressure of your lungs uh, being hung on your arms outright. So the Romans nailed their feet on a 45-degree wedge so that instinctually, as the person was suffocating, they would instinctually push up, grasp, and and gulp air down, and then slump back and hang and eventually asphyxiate, choke, right, or not be able to breathe. So when they they could no longer push up, they would die. That's what many doctors think uh, was the cause of death. So we pick up after this. 
after this brutal execution, after darkness covers the land, after Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After he dies, after the earthquake that tore the veil in two in the temple, and it's evening, and it's over. And a man named Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body, Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting up opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, so the religious leaders are going to the government authorities. Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. 66. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. 28 verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, that's a Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. <laughs> I like that. See, I've told you. <laughs> Eight. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders, and so they have a powwow, they have a meeting, right? <clears throat> Taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Like, they're looking at this dude in the eyes, and some doubted. 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So there's the claim. There's the claim. And as you can see, attempts were made to discredit the claim from the beginning. But what I want to point out to you is that if the events did happen, we have to deal with this in a whole new light. And what I want to point out to you is the disciples themselves do not paint a picture of eager, mindless belief tantamount to brainwashing. 
Not from the women, not from the disciples. In fact, the whole thing acknowledges a profound difficulty in believing that someone could rise from the dead. The philosopher whom Jesus loved once said, we are often guilty of chronological snobbery. Which is the arrogant idea that we as modern, sophisticated people are way more discerning and intelligent than all those who came before us. So I have a computer on my wrist and that's really cool. But when it comes to the internal reality of humans, nothing, let me test it out. Test, what am I about to say? When it comes to the internal reality of humans, nothing profound has changed since then to now, right? And they struggled with the belief or the idea that Jesus rose from the dead just as much as you do. We're in church, and I know we don't want to admit it, but the claim is that he rose from the dead. Like he was dead and came back to life. You ever seen that happen? In all of our modern enlightenment, you're telling me you don't struggle with this? Am I the only one up here who struggles with this? Just me. Okay, it's just me. All right. If you find your heart slow to believe, slow to the starting line when it comes to getting all excited about Jesus rising from the dead, right? Because in the back of your mind, you're like, nah, I don't really believe that can happen. And everyone else seems super excited about it. So he is risen indeed. Yeah, I mean, right? Right? Can I just say, can I just say, you're in good company? Huh? I'm going to show you this in scripture. But can I, can I also say, if you find yourself skeptical, can we agree that if Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, if the evidence points that historical claim is true, then everything Jesus said and did has to be now assessed in a new light with a new significance, with a new value, right? So first, I want to bring your attention to the fact that God, in his wisdom, saw fit to first reveal the fact that he had risen from the dead, not to rulers, not to those in power, not even to men, but to women. Now, why does that matter? <laughs> One lady, woo! Right. right. Why does that matter? We don't care about that today. Well, it's actually a really huge deal in first century Middle East, all right? So a woman couldn't even testify in court, y'all. Like a woman's word was worthless in that day. You can't prove anything. Even a woman comes in and says, this happened, they're like, get out of here, right? Get a man in here. <laughs> right? They, right? They, they, I mean, this is, we would be assaulted, like just appalled by, I mean, they bought them, they sold them, right? So two things Jesus is confronting here, right? I think Jesus is talk, com commenting on a social norm in his day that had dehumanizing behavior towards women by showing himself to a woman first and saying, go tell the boys, right? Jesus engaged with, this is excitement, Jesus engaged with women in ways for his time would have been radical and highly scandalous, when we see him talking to a woman at the, at the well who was a Samaritan, what did the disciples do when they come back? It says they marveled that he was talking to a woman. So we have to get in this mindset if we're going to understand the profound weight of what it means that he showed himself to a woman first, right? It says they marveled that he was talking to a woman at the well. All this points to Jesus positioning himself uh, or, or Jesus taking a position towards the reality that treated women with more dignity than his historical moment. So, number two, more relevant to our discussion. Uh, this would have been a laughable move if the disciples were trying to make this stuff up by claiming he rose from the dead. I want you to think about this, right? If they were making this up, as many modern people claim today, why on earth would they say he showed himself to a woman first? This would lampoon the entire movement, right? How do you know he rose from the dead? Well, our ladies told us, right? They would be laughed at, okay? So there's really only one plausible reason the disciples wrote this down, because it actually happened. 
I see no other historical reason why they would say this unless it actually happened. It would lampoon their argument, right? It's why both in Luke and John's gospel it include the fact that as soon as the lady said this, the men ran to the tomb to confirm it, right? Luke 24, so the ladies told us all this, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. In other words, nonsense. When the ladies come back and tell the guys, they laugh at them. They say, this is crazy. So they run back and find all, all they find is an empty tomb. And even that, they're still confused, right? Because they're like, they can't be telling the truth. <laughs> as, we, as we know from the last chapter, when some are walking to the road to Emmaus, right, they're talking to a stranger and they say, man, we thought Jesus was the guy. We thought he was the one. And what they say, and now our women are talking crazy. Like he rose from the dead. They're confused and depressed. Even after the report that Jesus rose from the dead, they still don't believe it. Then Jesus shows himself to his disciples, and we have another encounter. In the flesh, they're staring at him in the eyes, in the flesh, before them, right? In 16 and 17, it says, they worshiped him and some doubted. They couldn't believe it. They're looking at him in the face, and they're saying, uh-uh. We're seeing a ghost. This can't be real. How did this happen? This is why faith and disbelief, belief and disbelief is a condition. It is a state in which you find yourself. It's not an action in which you do. Because often, it is a predisposition in the heart that is filtering evidence through a bias. Huh? It's why one thing can happen and two people give completely different versions of the story, especially when the event, when the event breaks the bounds of their understanding of reality. So secular materialists, historians, can't conceive of any supernatural power raising Jesus from the dead. Now, the only problem with this, then they have to explain how on earth did Christianity go from some small minority persecuted religious sect in first century Palestine to the largest religion in the world? So they have to deal with it, right? Something happened around this claim. So you're going to find documentaries that are going to say, well, he didn't really die. And some of these theories are a little bit harder to believe than what the Bible actually says, right? They say, he didn't really die. He was beaten within an inch of his life, right? Blood spilled from his side, nailed to a cross, but he made it. He made it. They thought he was dead. They put him in a, he was Prince's Bride, right? Mostly dead, right? And they, they put him in a tomb. He was like sort of dead. They get the magic max or whatever. He, maybe he like found a stick and like leveraged the 2,000 pound stone that they would have put in front of it. So historians are going to say the, the rock that they put in front of it is like four or five feet high, somewhere around 2,000 pounds. And he's just, he found a stick, I guess. Let, I mean, beaten to death, bloodied, moved that thing over, crawled over Palestinian rocky terrain, found the disciples, and they nursed him back to health, and that's how it happened. Because historically, they can't deny the reality that something profoundly significant literally split time in half, right? And you had a small group of uneducated Jews who literally turned the world upside down. And at some point, it becomes clear that you are dealing selectively with the facts and are choosing to acknowledge certain things because of other beliefs you have, AKA, otherwise, you know, the pe people don't come back to life, there's not supernatural power, whatever. And those ideas and beliefs are exerting influence over this claim. So the larger point I'm trying to make here is the disciples struggled with this, y'all. <laughs> this wasn't just, oh, cool, awesome, back, back from the dead, right? And it's not really till Pentecost that you see any dis distinguished difference in the disciples themselves. In John's gospel, last little point here, John's gospel, it tells us that Thomas wasn't there. Thomas gets a bad rap, man, all right? So he was like out getting Starbucks, and then Jesus shows up, and then he comes back with all the lattes, and they're like, he's alive. And, and he's like, y'all are crazy. That's what literally, that's what he says to him. That's what he says. If you read the language, John 20, 25 says this. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never 
believe. Now, if you're a Christian, it's your favorite thing to rag Thomas, right? Oh, doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas, right? And I, I'm just going to say, I believe the bro was unfairly nicknamed. All of, I mean, he just went out for coffee, right? <laughs> Rest of the history, doubting Thomas, right? And if you think about it, he's just asking for proof. I mean, isn't that what you do all the time? Like, God, if you're real, if you want me to obey, then do this, right? Heal this person, fix this thing. I want to see a clown riding an elephant down Main Street, and then I'll go to church, right? Then I'll submit, right? And the disciples are struggling with just as much, and Thomas is just asking for proof. And I want you to, I want you to see that. This wasn't a no-brainer for them, Okay. They had just as many obstacles as we have when it comes to believing that something audacious and ridiculous, something like this could happen, okay? As a Christian, there may be instances where God says, obey me here, whether or not you understand the whole picture. And walking in faith in that moment will feel risky as you trust. But he, listen to what I'm saying, he does not expect you to get to that kind of trust by blind, unexamined allegiance to things you really don't believe happened. Amen. We track him? He doesn't expect you to get to that kind of trust by blind allegiance to things you don't really believe happened. Now, how can I say this? Well, what does Jesus say to Thomas when he appears to him later? He doesn't chide him for his lack of faith like he often does in his disciples, right? In the, other, in the other Gospels, and you can read it in John. He invites Thomas to explore the evidence. What does he say? He says, put your fingers here, man. Put your hand here. Don't, don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, have you believed? Because you've seen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Or you might say, blessed are those who won't let their bias keep them from acknowledging the evidence. Or, blessed are those who will doubt their doubts. Blessed are those who will question their questions, who will question their pre-established ways of thinking in light of new evidence. So number one, shows himself to ladies, which would have been a horrible move in the first century. Number two, the disciples themselves write down the fact that they struggled to believe this. I mean, so much for putting up a strong front, right, with Christianity. There's no conceivable reason, y'all for them to write the things they wrote, acknowledge the things they acknowledged about even their own disbelief, unless it actually happened. Because it, the way it's told makes the story highly suspect. A woman told you, and you guys didn't even believe? The only reason they would write this is if it actually happened, right? So then you're gonna find writers in the New Testament further down the road uh, that are gonna give verifiable evidence. They're gonna say things like, 500 people saw him, you can go talk to them. Now, why would they say that if, if they couldn't verify that evidence, right? Paul, and Paul does that, and he's almost inviting the reader. Hey, man, look, go talk to them. They're still around. Some of them are still here, right? He wouldn't do that if it was made up. So Kathy Keller points out about the Matthew text we read earlier this. We're going to wrap it up. The angel didn't ask the ladies or disciples to trust his word. He said, Jesus has already risen. He's gone. He did, Jesus did not have to wait for the angel to move the stone to let him out. He would not have needed angelic help to get out of the tomb. Why then roll away the stone at all? Well, imagine if the angel had just arrived and sat on the stone, but without moving it, and delivered the same message. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Would the women have believed him? Maybe. Maybe not. The angel's probably pretty persuasive. But what about everyone else? Without an open, visibly empty tomb, the resurrection was not verifiable. 
People who claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus could have been hallucinating. Wishful thinking, maybe? To my surprise, she says, I realized that the stone needed to be rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. Trust, but verify. The resurrection needed to be verified by eyewitnesses who could testify to the empty tomb, the empty grave clothes. Ours is a faith founded on an event that took place in time and history. And it began with an angel opening the tomb so that we could look into the empty space and see for ourselves that he was no longer there. Now, why have I talked about it in this way? Well, as Mark Twain said, faith, many people believe, faith is believing what you know ain't true. I just want to say to you, Jesus is in the Easter Bunny. He ain't Santa Claus. He is a real historical person who lived in history and made audacious claims about himself. If he didn't rise from the dead, then we really needn't bother any of the claims. But if he did, then we have to deal with his claims in a new way. He claimed for himself he was the only true sustenance and strength for the soul. That's what Jesus claimed for himself. He called himself the bread of life. He said he alone could give living water to you who thirst. His followers realized Moses, David, and all the kings and prophets failed to do what Jesus did. They were all foreshadows of what Christ would do. It would be Jesus who would ultimately lead his people out of slavery. It would be Jesus who would ultimately establish justice and mercy in the earth. It would be Jesus who would ultimately sacrifice himself for his people once and for all for forgiveness, right? Or as 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So, so look right here. I don't care who you are. If you go to church today or not, today you can step into the complete work of Christ. With all your doubts, all your sins, all your fears, all your imperfections, he sees it all just like he sees mine. You don't think I got a bunch of that stuff? Or just because I got the mic, I ain't got no doubts and fears and imperfections? Huh? All your fears, all your doubts. You think I got no sins? I can list them off for you, right? All your sins, he says, all of you. I love it. I love you. I'm going to transform you. I want you still, right? We all have doubts, fears, imperfections. He sees it all, and he still says, I love you with an undying love, a love that death itself couldn't stop. He offers the kind of life that never Fades. They called it eternal life, and he offered it freely. Based on this work, right, you needn't work anymore to justify your existence and prove you're worth something. Based on his life, his claims, his death, his resurrection, you can enter into his rest. Just like Jesus stood and cried out at the feast, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So today, Jesus speaks to every one of you. And he invites every one of you, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, to feast, to drink, to delight. And the invitation is the same for all of us in this room right now. I don't care where you stand with God. The invitation is come to the only water that can satisfy. Come to the only bread that can fill. Be refreshed. Take and eat, right? The invitation is to actually drink, to be sustained by him whether you call yourself a Christian or not, to forsake empty wells that can't satisfy and delight in the only one who can, right? Now, at the end of the day, you will have to decide for yourself 
what you choose to believe in light of or despite the evidence you think trustworthy. But can I tell you that through my own struggle, through my own lack of faith, in my weak and feeble efforts to cling to Jesus, I find amidst the struggle an abiding sense of strength and peace that I cannot explain. I find rivers of emotional and spiritual strength within dry seasons. I find sustenance in wilderness. Amidst my fears, amidst my sins, amidst my struggle, as I try to cling to Jesus, I find joy within sorrow. Joy within sorrow. Peace within, amidst the storm. I find love and forgiveness amidst the frustration. I don't get out of it. I don't get a free pass. I'm right there with everyone else. And I'm saying it as I desperately try to cling to Jesus, Within the struggle, I find these things, right? Grace amidst demands, power amidst weakness, comfort amidst adversity, light and direction amidst the darkness. Doesn't solve all the problems, but it does give you a new resource within the problems. We chatting? That's what it means to be a Christian. And on and on I can go. The longer I walk down this path, the more I find my confidence is not in my ability to cling to Jesus, but in his ability to hold me, right? Jesus is... Can I just talk to you as a friend for a second? I don't know you, maybe. Can I just talk to you as a normal person? Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I don't know where you're at, man. I don't know where you're at with Jesus, with church, with all this stuff, right? Where you stand. But the invitation is, to, is the same for all of us, right? And what I would say is Psalm 118 to 14. The invitation is to say with the psalmist, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's what this journey means, y'all. You want to call yourself a Christian? You want to do this thing? You want to try to be faithful? It's learning to sing and say, he has become. He is becoming my salvation. And I cling to him with all I have, right? That's what's on the table. Nothing less. Full and complete salvation from things that lead to death, even from death itself. That's the claim, right? Let's stand and pray. So every week um, in our church, it is our custom to kind of what the words we sometimes use is do business with God. And what we're acknowledging, and as we do this every week, is just coming to church doesn't mean you're engaging with God. Calling yourself a Christian, doing the thing, does not mean you are engaging with God. And so despite all the form, despite all the paraphernalia of religion, we want to give ourselves an opportunity to be honest before God. And sometimes church is the hardest place to do that, ain't it? So we're going to take some time. And if you should be so bold to quietly in your heart, be honest before the Lord today. I think he'll meet you here. Let's pray. God, we open the doors and the windows of our soul to you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you make yourself known in our hearts and lives right now in this moment? Jesus, Holy Spirit. Lord, come and reveal to us the things that have been wreaking havoc in our lives, Lord. God, reveal to us the things that have been sabotaged, the things we are clinging to our chest that are sabotaging our joy. Ideas, thoughts, patterns of behavior, beliefs, things we are clinging to that in the end are killing us. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit. Help us see these things in trueness. Give us clarity of vision, God, to right now acknowledge the state of our soul before you.
So right now, if you should be so honest, um, I just want to encourage you, man. Just tell God what's up, man. <laughs> tell him what's going on in your heart. Might, might have been a while. It's all right. I just want to encourage you, man. Just go through the catalog. Bring to the Lord the things that you know aren't right. Let's ask his mercy to, to meet you in this moment. God, would you save us from being the kind of people whose arrogance blinds us to our own sin? God, give us hearts that feel again. Lord, where we have been cauterized by sorrow and adversity and difficulty, God, give us hearts of flesh, Holy Spirit. God, where we have been barricading ourselves in isolation, Holy Spirit, call us out of darkness. Bring new life, Lord. Show us our part to play in this. The Bible says, on the night he was handed over to suffering and death, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in the remembrance of me. So if you're a Christian, you're invited to the table. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to start at the front, on the side. We're